We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. All eyes in the legal world and beyond are in Washington these days and the drama being played out in the Supreme Court nomination process for Brett Kavanaugh. Our legal roundtable panel will take a closer look at that process and at a lot of other things going on in the world of law and jurisprudence. Joining me in studio are Bill Freivogel, professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Mark Smith is associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. Rebecca Hollander-Blumoff is vice dean for research and faculty development and professor of law at Washington University's Law School. Thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. Where do we start? <laughs> there is so much going on in this Washington deal. Rebecca, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what um, your impression is of bringing in this female prosecutor to uh, question uh, Mr. Kavanaugh or Ms. Ford or both. I'm not quite sure tomorrow. Yeah. At the moment, it appears as though she's slated to question Dr. Ford. It's not clear to me whether she's going to be questioning uh, Judge Kavanaugh. I think um, given her experience and some of the statements that she's made in the past, uh, she seems like she will be a pretty good questioner optically for uh, the Republican Senate uh, delegation on the Judiciary Committee. You mean the 11 men who aren't <laughs> going to ask any questions? Yeah. If you <laughs> 11 can get, white men? Yeah. If you can get past the optics of them having to delegate to someone who they called a female assistant, uh, once you get past that, I think in the role, uh, she's likely to play pretty well. Um, the question might be, can you get past that? Right. Bill, what do you think? Well, I mean, this is just, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's probably a smart tactic by uh, the Republican uh, uh, senators uh, to try to avoid the appearance uh, that was given back in the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, where what was all uh, white male uh, uh, senators challenging her truthfulness and whether she was fantasizing about Clarence Thomas, etc. Uh, I, I was. Um, my wife and I covered uh, Clarence Thomas Anita Hill's uh, story. Uh, Margie. Uh, wrote about the um, Anita Hill portion of the testimony in Clarence Thomas's rebuttal about it being a high-tech lynching. And I was, I was reading some of those stories over last night, and, uh, and it's a – I mean, the, the Republicans may uh, – this time may be avoiding some of the mistakes that they made last time, but um, there's some the, – the, 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 it, it seems like the storyline is proceeding a lot like it did then, with this sort of rush towards judgment. The you know the Repu- the, the Republicans not wanting to give enough time uh, for testimony of witnesses, uh, other women who had said Clarence Thomas had sexually <coughs> har- harassed uh, them were not allowed to testify. Um, so it seems to me the you know the Republicans this time around are doing the same. They how can how can they not call um, Kavanaugh's friend Judge, who is supposedly in the room at the time of the sexual assault of Dr. Ford? Um, and I, I also think they're I think they're making a mistake not to have the FBI do a investigation of these various incidents. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, if you uh, back back then, it was the FBI investigation of Anita Hill that they used as their main way to knock down her credibility. Mm-hmm. They said, "Oh, you didn't tell the FBI about all these details." When when the FBI talked to you, you make, you're making them up. Your you know slick lawyers have given you all this stuff. So I think maybe even from their own from their own vantage point, they're making a mistake. But I, I definitely think they should have had the FBI do an investigation. But Mark, yeah. this is quite different than the Hill case. Hill was a question of verbal assault, basically. This is a question of sexual it, assault. Yeah, and also um, a much uh, younger. I mean, it, you know, and uh, they were they were adults <clears throat> when that happened with the Anita Hill thing. Um, one of the things I think about Mitchell that's going to be very interesting, and Rebecca mentioned this before we came on the air too, is that she has talked about the fact that children. She's the, she's the prosecutor. The prosecutor. Yes. There's going to come. She's talked about the uh, the very com- common misconception that when children will talk about abuse, and and this woman was I think 15 at the time, and she she says people think that children would tell right away. And that they would tell everything that happened to them. In reality, children often keep this secret for years, sometimes into their adulthood, sometimes forever. And so her typical role is coming in, uh, going after the abuser and probably being really tough on the abuser. But with the the victim, who's the witness who's coming for- forward to be more kid gloves. So – I'm not sure how she's going to do it in this hearing. Is she going to kind of switch roles and be harsh with this woman? I think I think that could be a real mistake, optic wise. And I, I just I don't. I'm very curious to see what happens with this. Rebecca, you're shaking your head. The, yeah. de- the Democrats also get a chance to ask questions. Yeah, they sure do. They yeah. sure do. I mean, I, I can't see Mitchell coming in and and being very harsh and prosecutorial uh, with Dr. Ford in part because I think so much of what is going on here in this hearing, um, at least at this moment in time, is really not uh, for the senators themselves, it's for the American people who are watching, uh-huh. right? It's meant to suggest that the senators are listening, uh, that they care, that they want to hear this, that they want to get to the bottom of it. It's meant to give the public a perception that there's really been a full vetting. Um, and yet at the same time, you have pretty clearly uh, Republican leadership talking in terms that suggest no such thing, mm-hmm. right? You've got uh, Mitch McConnell saying, uh, we're going to win, Right. And we're going to win is not about we're going to have a collaborative process where we get to the bottom of what happened and we're going to try to figure it out. It's uh, this is a vote count. um, And so maybe um, beyond the hearing being for the American people, it's for maybe two or three senators who are on the fence. But but the optics matter a lot here. Big time. And, and, And I think this fact that this hearing is not a trial. You know, you keep watching on TV and everyone keeps talking about, or I hear my neighbors talking about, well, where's the presumption of innocence? I mean, this is not a criminal trial. This is more like a job interview. and A big and, promotion. Yeah, a big promotion. <laughs> and you have to show that you have the ability and, and I would say the character that would that would warrant you having this big promotion that you're going to get to keep for the rest of your life. Some people would disagree with the way I, I view that. But um, but it's definitely not a criminal where somebody's going to be found innocent and somebody's going to be found guilty. You know, President Trump, after controlling himself for a few days, uh, was was trashing uh, 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 Debbie uh, Ramirez, uh, the Yale student who had accused 
uh, Kavanaugh yesterday and, you know, saying why didn't Dr. Ford uh, or, or, or uh, her loving parents report this, you know, 30 years ago, um, which, as, as people have said before, you know, ignores the fact that victims of sexual assaults often don't report them at the time that they occur. Uh, so the, I think the Repub- I think that the president's fall and and Mitch McConnell are falling into that um, sort of trap that they were avoiding at the beginning of uh, trying to make the women look like like uh, you know liars. Do we know how much time uh, the, uh, the the lawyer is going to have to to uh, interview uh, Dr. Ford? I thought I read five minutes per senator, so I would assume well, she'd get that whole time. She'd get the uh, 50, yeah. 55 minutes yeah. then, and the each of the Democrats right, yeah. would get five minutes to talk. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's what I assume, but I don't know that too. for a fact. I also think you know, the <clears throat> Democrats might be well-served to have a, a lawyer uh, asking their questions just because they, they tend to – you know, grandstand, and well, they, 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 you know, if you're got, asking questions, you should be asking questions, not testifying well, yourself. I've got Camilla Harris, and she's a no, she's a former attorney general yeah. and pretty good lawyer, apparently. Yeah. I mean, let's so. make clear that, that I, I don't believe the Senate Judiciary Committee has ever done had a lawyer asking questions of witnesses uh, in connection with a Supreme Court confirmation report. This is just mm. this is just a new procedure. Uh, that was invented for this situation, so it was a woman out there instead of a bunch of white men asking the questions. Um, um, so, well, maybe they need training then. I mean, <laughs> the, the the Democrats, uh, if they're not going to bring in, but I mean, this grandstanding stuff, I, I just don't think it serves them well. I mean, it's certainly true that a lawyer with the right skills can draw out a narrative in a much right. clearer way than a lot of senators barraging at five-minute intervals. Uh, so, you know, it, taking it out of this particular situation, right. there might be something to be said for reexamining yeah. the process anytime you're trying to actually get mm-hmm. a real story out. I mean, that's that's true. The senators are terrible at asking questions. Almost all of them are terrible. And uh, and uh, I mean, it was you know, Mitch McConnell pointed out that during the Watergate hearings, uh, oftentimes they did use the the lawyers to elicit the you know most of the testimony. So it's not that it has never been used on Capitol Hill. It's just that it hasn't ever been used in this kind of situation before. Rebecca, you point out that uh, this is all to play to the American public. I think we have to keep in mind that fifty one percent of the American public is female. And that, that too, is an audience being played to and watching very closely. I think that's right. I mean, and obviously that's not a monolithic group. That's not a group that all uh, votes in the same direction or has the same reaction to these allegations. Uh, but I think it's certainly true that there are a lot of women who have been very galvanized by, um, you know, this in the context of the whole Me Too movement. And it's really changed the way that a lot of women, I think, are approaching the political and, system. And, and you've had this kind of thing it. happen to them in the past and said, OK, I'm not going to. But the <clears throat> fact that somebody else is coming out and people are saying, oh, it's, she's just making this up because of whatever reason, you know, I think – for so many women, it's just like, what are you talking about? Why would anyone bring this upon themselves? And I think, you know, in light of some of the other current events of the day, for example, Bill Cosby's conviction right. and sentencing, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can see that it's long been in the playbook to issue a blanket denial in a situation where what comes out later is, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that this did happen, right. despite a denial. 
I've got to take a break now, but perhaps the two most important women watching all of this will be Senators Collins and Murkowski. They hold a a big key, no question about that. Okay, let's take our break. We'll come back and continue this conversation. There's more to talk about, and we'll do that when we continue. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Back to our conversation with attorneys Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Rebecca Hollander-Blumoff. Bill Freivogel, I'll come mm-hmm. back to you. Um, there is a new wrinkle in the case as of this morning. Michael Avenatti, the former St. Louisan, uh, has produced yet another woman who uh, claims to be a part of these scenarios, the kinds of scenarios we're talking about. This woman apparently uh, was a rape victim, and she places... Uh, Brett Kavanaugh at the scene of one of these, unclear as to whether or not he was a participant. What does this do to all of what we've been talking about? Yeah, it seems as though she doesn't say that he was one of the one of the participants in her being her being raped. Um, so this is a, a woman whose name is Julie Swetnick. She's had a number of. She grew up in the same uh, part of Bethesda. Actually, she, li- she lived in Gaithersburg, just uh, a little bit north of Bethesda, but basically in the same high school scene uh, that Kavanaugh and his friend um, Mark Judge uh, grew up in, uh, in the Bethesda area. And she's filed an affidavit in which she says that she attended a number of parties, uh, knew that Judge and Kavanaugh put grain alcohol in the drinks of uh, vulnerable, especially vulnerable attend- female attendees, girls attending the party who were then uh, uh, put off in rooms where a train of men that included Judge and Kavanaugh would uh, then line up to basically rape them. Uh, she said uh, that she herself was a, um, a victim of some of these rates, rapes, uh, although she doesn't specifically say that Kavanaugh or Judge uh, did that to to her. Uh, Kavanaugh has said this is um, Twilight Zone stuff didn't happen. Um, the president has said uh, that uh, uh, that Avenatti is, uh, you know, he knows it's just a liar uh, from his own personal experience. Mm-hmm. It's the only sense he was the, uh, the lawyer uh, representing Stormy Daniels. Does she have, Rebecca, does she have to appear before this committee now, would you think? You know, I think the stakes are going up for a broader investigation um, and to bring more witnesses in, either uh, in front of the Judiciary Committee or to have the FBI uh, start doing some interviews. You know, I think especially the stakes have gone up uh, for Judge, uh, you know, the friend Judge. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he is uh, holed up, I believe, on the Delaware shore, hiding out um, uh, to avoid uh, being involved in this. And I think as these stories come out, uh, the idea that we wouldn't hear from him directly under oath becomes more and more impossible to imagine uh, in terms of having an outcome that uh, people really would feel was legitimate. He's hiding out but not too well because he's been found. <laughs> <laughs> so there's yeah. that. Mark, uh, this uh, this latest thing, the Avenatti uh, statement that uh, came out today, this was a, a sworn statement that this woman has made. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little bit different. Isn't she in some legal jeopardy if she is lying in a sworn statement? Yeah. I, guess, I mean, she could be, I guess, for perjury. But, you know, it's not like she's lying to the FBI where it's a felony if you do that. Um, so I think there's more weight to it. Um, and, you know, this is an interesting question. I assume they're going to be sworn in tomorrow before. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So 
So then we get um, statements. I, I, I also think putting things in writing, um, you know, you've got less wiggle room. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's more serious. But the thing is, you know, it's like we've talked about before. This is really, it's not a, in many ways, this is not a legal issue. This is a political issue. And, and I think the two sides are looking at it from, you know, the Republicans are saying, how far, how hard can we push this and still not hurt ourselves in the midterm elections? And the Democrats are saying, you know, how far we can push this maybe to convert those two Republican senators who we think we might be able mm-hmm. to get. And, but I, it's it's not a legal proceeding. Yeah, there's no legal standard like probable mm-hmm. cause or beyond a reasonable doubt or preponderance of the evidence. It's just what do we think or, or, after or all? Or even a procedure. They're just making up the rules as they go along. We're going to allow right. this witness. We're not going to allow this witness. And this procedure differs from uh, the procedure they used before with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. Uh, it's just at, fi- at, at the end of the at the end of the day, it's uh, do does the does the Senate think that. Uh, this person has the character to be put on the highest court in the land. That's what that's what the standard is. Do you have any feeling, Rebecca, on that with regard to the the nature of the statement she signed? You know, I think um, it's possible that given the declaration, she might be subject to a some kind of prosecution. I think, regardless of whether she signed this statement, uh, you know, as a sworn declaration or not, um, she still would be subject to a defamation case. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. you know, and. And so if she is lying and, you know, others, uh, accusers are lying, whether they say it to the press or they say it, um, you know, on Twitter or they say it in a sworn statement, um, you know, if it's truly untrue, then they could be the subject of some kind of defamation action. I haven't heard uh, Judge Kavanaugh suggest that yet. I know that's something President Trump suggested uh, in accusations against him. Uh, so yeah. that's possible out there. So and defamation would be a tort action. It's not yeah. a criminal Yeah, it's thing. civil. But, yeah. but civil. does this statement carry more weight than a simple declaration from uh, Dr. Ford, for instance? I think it carries more weight than just you know Ford's interview with – uh, uh, with the Washington Post, but I think that Ford's testimony in person yeah. tomorrow yeah. will carry more weight than this than this affidavit. Right, I think that's right. Okay. And, I, and I'd like sworn testimony to the FBI because they'll prosecute you then. Yeah, well, as uh, Rebecca indicated, that may be uh, closer I, than it has been. I, I mean, now there are a bunch of witnesses to these three different allegations who could be interview- who who could be interviewed by the FBI. All the people who uh, were, were present at Yale and Lawrence Hall Common Room. Um, involving Debbie Ramirez, uh, the uh, the people who f- whom Ford talked to, the lie de- the li- the person who gave her the lie detector test, what those results showed, Mark Judge, <clears throat> all the people, other people who were present at these parties that the third accuser is talking about. And I want to add um, from what Bill was saying, you know, in terms of the character issue, I think that Judge Kavanaugh has raised the stakes on that somewhat by the defense that he's staked out. Um, You know, I understand that he's now saying, you know, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. But in the interview that he did on television, um, he really staked out uh, an approach that described him as, you know, a service project, uh, nose to the grindstone. Go to church. You know, know, uh, only legal drinking, no sexual activity activity, a kind of a character. And so the more the tide rises on the other side of that, uh, the more he has a character problem that in some ways is is a little bit of an unforced error uh, on that point. Um, 
Anything else to add on this? I'd like to move along to some other no. things at Washingtonian. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just say one thing that's different n- now than Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas, is it seems like at least some initial polls and NPR poll, a majority, uh, not a majority, but more people believe Dr. Ford than believe yeah. Kavanaugh, uh, like 32 to 26 percent. Back then, more people believed Clarence Thomas than, uh, than believed Anita Hill. One thing that unfortunately hasn't changed, I'm sorry to say, is uh, Senator Danforth's uh, uh, seeming uh, focus, continued focus on what it, how horrible this is for the guys who are accused. He didn't look That's, good. In a, in a wonderful career, he didn't look good in what he did with Clarence Thomas, and he doesn't look good this time either. A bunch of clergy have criticized him for that. Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, let's look at some other things. And uh, I wonder, Mark, I'll start with you, is um, – is the Mueller investigation in any jeopardy now that Assistant Attorney General Rosenstein looks like he could be on his way out as early as tomorrow? I, I think it's always been in jeopardy. And, you know, typically you would say, no, it's not. It seems like if, if, you were, if we were betting on it, I would say I don't think anything's going to happen until after the election uh, because I think it's, it's too risky. But, you know, the pre- this is up to the president. He, he seems to make decisions pretty quickly and from shoots from the hip. And so, yeah, I could see Rosenstein mm-hmm. getting fired and Sessions uh, quitting and they, he puts somebody else in until they get rid of Mueller. I'm glad you mentioned the election because I had the opportunity recently to talk with uh, the former director of the FBI, James Comey. And I asked him if, in fact, he thought that Mueller could be through by, uh, by election day. And uh, here's how he responded. I know it's been incredibly productive. In just over a year, it's produced all kinds of charges and convictions. And so they've been working really hard and produced a lot of results. But I don't know. I think there's an argument to be made that the conviction, the plea in cooperation by Paul Manafort may represent that we're in the fourth quarter because the way you normally do investigations is you work from the bottom up. And so they're getting pretty high. But again, the reason I'm, I'm hesitant to even say that is Bob Mueller has conducted his investigation like a pro. You know nothing about it except through his public filings, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So I can't say with certainty where he is. Former FBI Director Jim Comey, that fourth quarter comment got a lot of attention. I think all of the cable networks, the Hill in Washington responded to it. Even the Onion, if you will, had (laughs) some reference to it. So a lot of people were paying attention to that, Bill. Uh, What do you think? I mean, do you think this could happen before Election Day? Should it? I guess I think it probably won't <laughs> happen before election day, but maybe pretty soon after election day, which would still have us being in the fourth in the yeah. fourth quarter. Um, I mean, I I, I I totally agree with uh, with Comey. I I have a lot of respect for uh, for Comey, and we have to remember that it was Trump's unforced error of firing Comey that led to the mm-hmm. special prosecutor and the whole situation he's mm-hmm. in, and you know, bolstered the case for obstruction of, of justice on his part. Um, but, yeah, I think I think with Manafort turning, Cohen having turned, that, um, you know, we're getting down to the end. If I were, if I were Mueller, I would have a draft of my report written right. yeah. already and be ready to just, to, to, to unload it before yeah. I got fired. Yeah. I don't know if that's that, you know Mueller is such a by the book guy. Maybe that wouldn't be by the book, but 
I, I have read, well, I believe that he's you know, been working on some drafts. But he's c- certainly a sharp cookie, and he's got the thing structured in such a way that if this falls apart, there's still some state charges that's that right, could be filed, right. and that's, that's big. That's really a firewall for him. Yeah, and he's done a lot of work, too, to connect up with relevant U.S. attorney's offices right. across the country to farm right. out pieces of this that are uh, of particular interest to those groups, you know, that are maybe offshoots. So I think he's, he's planted a lot of seeds out there to um, make sure that, that something's in place. My own feeling is I, I don't think he's going to get fired, but, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a gambler. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you don't but think I, Rosenstein's going to get fired? Uh, or be forced to quit? Mueller. Mueller. Oh, Mueller. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's going to come back to, to Mueller being, you know, kicked off this investigation. I think that just politically that, that firestorm is, is uh, too great. Um, but who knows? Well, the, the, the president is so mercurial. I mean, there's no way of even trying to project what he could possibly be thinking with regard to Rosenstein. I mean, he, he would sure like him out of there. I don't think yeah. anybody's going to deny that. But what is he going to do? As, and they meet tomorrow. I mean, I think the main reason for Trump to keep Rosenstein in uh, would be that Rosenstein now is in, he's injured. He's, he's yeah, damaged yeah. goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the, of the New York Times story. And so why not leave him in there as damaged goods and not have to deal with the political fallout of firing him? So, you know, I could see I can see Trump saying, well, we'll just play this thing out. Till after you know, my, my wife and I were talking about this. And the thing is, you know, you feel sorry for this guy because here he <laughs> is, a lifelong public service who could go to a large law firm and probably make five times as much money, not have to worry about all this stuff. And he's trying to, he's, you know, plotted along, doing the right thing, just being exceptional. And then he's got to deal with all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, really? I mean, I, I think if I were him, I'd just say, screw it. I'm, I quit. I'm, I'm going to go make some money. I'd really like to see the story someday written about the New York Times sources on that story. Yeah. And, you know, what was their – I mean, as a reporter, when you're using anonymous sources, you're supposed to pay attention to what are they trying to gain. Yeah. Um, of course, if the information is so great, you know, you, you oftentimes will publish the information even if you know they're trying to – to uh, gain something that that uh, you know may not be may, may not be uh, terrific, but uh, I, I just don't I don't know what was what were the sources they're trying to do? Were they trying to get Rosen, Rosenstein fired uh, because that would help the Democrats? Or yeah, I just have no clue. Yeah. Very quickly. One thing I just want to add, uh, picking up on Mark's point, is that um, it would be a, a lot better for uh, President Trump if Rosenstein res- uh, Resign. resigns because the Federal Vacancies Reform Act actually limits who uh, Trump can put in that role uh, depending on whether he's fired or who he, or, or if he oh, resigns. Really? So it would be the Solicitor General if that, in fact, that I have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll have more of this and other things, too, in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to the Legal Roundtable panel of Rebecca Hollander-Brumoff, Mark Smith, and Bill Freivogel. Mark, I'll turn to you. Uh, with all the things we've been talking about, we almost forget it's almost the first right. Monday in October when the Supreme Court convenes. Um, should we be paying more attention at this point? Yeah. It, you, Rebecca was just saying during the break, we get a whole other set of cases released tomorrow. But um, there's um, two cases that I wanted to just mention um, uh, death penalty cases, one out of Missouri, and we, I think we've talked about this before. 
the the person has a medical condition and he says the the injection protocol would cause him basically to drown in his own blood and so he's asking for a different um, type of execution probably um, I mean it's a local case but um, the legal issues are probably not as interesting more interesting is another case I think it's out of Alabama where the man um, who was convicted of murdering a police officer um, has since had a series of stroke. He's basically in a wheelchair, incontinent, doesn't know who the president was, um, is, doesn't remember the murders. And the question is, is it cruel and unusual punishment mm-hmm. to go ahead and execute this guy who doesn't even know what he did? What's the purpose and is it cruel and unusual punishment? But there are a bunch of other cases we were talking about. But I'll let- what's, what's caught your eyes, guys? Uh, I think a case called Gamble is particularly interesting right now. It's a case that involves the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution. Uh, technically, the issue is whether the double jeopardy clause in the Constitution should apply to the um, to the separate sovereigns doctrine. Uh, the idea here is uh, that uh, if a federal prosecution takes place and a state prosecution takes place for the same conduct, that's historically been uh, considered yeah. to be acceptable. Uh, but the question here is, uh, should that should that be allowed? Um, if we get rid of the separate sovereigns doctrine, um, it's not the case that we would necessarily get rid of dual prosecutions for uh, all kinds of conduct that was uh, similar. There's a rule from 1932 called the Blockburger Rule. That means that as long as crimes have elements that are different from one another, that each crime has a different element, uh, that you could still prosecute uh, in a federal and a state uh, situation. Um, But uh, that would uh, bring down a lot of litigation on a very old precedent, the Blockburger Mm -hmm. precedent, if we get rid of that separate sovereigns doctrine. Um, This is a case that is a little bit of a strange bedfellows case, I'll say, because um, there was a recent concurrence in a a a case a few years ago uh, between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Thomas, uh, who both urged for reconsideration of this doctrine, uh, urging that we get rid of it. Why is particularly of note to us today, maybe, rather than just kind of an esoteric question, uh, is that some people have suggested that uh, this is of particular relevance in some of the prosecutions that we have going on right now where uh, President Trump might invoke his pardon power. So a case like Paul Manafort's, uh, where if we have a prosecution in the federal court and uh, the president pardons uh, the defendant. Uh, typically, this uh, right now under that dual the separate sovereigns doctrine, you could have another prosecution in the state, and if we get rid of that, mm, mm. that would be a dead case. Yeah, Bill, anything uh, you want to talk about before well, we move on? We, we shouldn't forget the Mississippi gopher frog, <laughs> and what, whether whether uh, whether or not who's on the Endangered Species Act list, and whether or not the uh, federal government can uh, grab some warehouser. Um, uh, uh, timber land in Mississippi, where that frog used to live uh, back in the 1960s, in order to try to uh, create some habitat for for the Mississippi frog. Okay, we'll have to look for that. Yes, that's the first case. That's the first com- case coming up on Monday. We have uh, one of our listeners is asking, "What's the legal definition of slander and libel, and how would it apply to the circumstances surrounding Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing?" Well, if the the person who is libeled or slandered, in other words, their reputation is defamed, uh, if they are a public uh, figure or a public official as as Kavanaugh would be, it's uh, actual malice means reckless disregard for the truth, knowledge of falsity. 
it's a pretty high standard. Yeah. Right, and the difference between slander and libel, um, just to remind yeah. everybody, is slander is verbal and libel is in print. Right. Okay, I want to play another clip for you and then move along to some other things. Again, another clip from the former FBI director, James Comey. I'm interested in getting your feedback on what he had to say about uh, President Donald Trump and um, basically uh, his rule of law thoughts. Let's go to that. I think we're in two different places. We're in a place where the president of the United States relentlessly attacks the rule of law and the institutions of justice. So that's terrible. But the second place we're in is that Americans have awakened to the importance of the rule of law and the danger posed by its erosion. And that's a very, very important sort of antibody response. And it's a source for optimism. People who would otherwise not spend a lot of time thinking about it are now thinking about why this matters so much that these institutions not prosecute people because of politics, not protect people because of politics, and that they stand apart from the political and seek only to find out what's true and what's just. I think everybody's coming to understand that in a way provoked by the attack. Rebecca, do you share his optimism? You know, I think that the unprecedented amount of political activity that we have seen is a cause for optimism on the front that... Um, that uh, Mr. Comey is talking about. Um, you know, I think he's absolutely right that people care deeply about the rule of law. I think that's part of why there's so much focus on the Supreme Court right now. Uh, the Supreme Court, uh, if you look at uh, so social science, the Supreme Court is the branch of our government that enjoys the largest perception of legitimacy. And people really want to believe in it. They want to believe in the rule of law. And so attacks on the federal judiciary, I think, really hit in a particularly hard place. And that's part of why you see that there's so much at stake in this fight. Hmm. I think he's definitely right that we've never had a president so much at war with the rule of law. I mean, take keep in mind that this this deep state of FBI and Justice Department officials, I mean, when he's talking about Sessions and he's talking about Rosenstein, these are people he appointed. And you know, to have a president after a federal prosecution uh, gets a conviction of Manafort to say how, how sorry he is that – his prosecutors won a, won, won a conviction. And to, to, to hear him talk about how prosecutors shouldn't ever be able to flip people because they're flipping people against him. But, you know, federal, that's what federal prosecutors have done uh, forever. Uh, so, I mean, he, he, you would never know he, if, you, if, you, if you didn't have confirmation that he was president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I'm going to do what we might call a lightning round now because we don't have a whole have a lot of time left. Uh, you're familiar with the case of the uh, gay married couple uh, that uh, was denied uh, the ability to stay in a retirement center. Uh, they have filed suit. No surprise there. Anybody have anything to say about that? Well, it's a big question of whether or not uh, sexual orientation, uh, discrimination against sexual orientation is protected by uh, the Missouri and the federal laws that uh, bar discrimination on base, basis of sex. Two federal courts of appeals, uh, the Second Circuit and the Seventh Circuit in Illinois, uh, have said that sexu- discrimination against sexual orientation is covered by by uh, Title VII, the, the federal law against sex discrimination. Uh, one federal court of appeals, the Eleventh Circuit, has said otherwise. Uh, there's a case before the Missouri uh, Supreme Court and the A Circuit Court of Appeals here in St. Louis uh, on that very issue. Probably it will go to the Supreme Court. 
probably one of these cases will go to the Supreme Court for a decision at some point. All right. The next uh, issue I have on my uh, folder here is the duck boat suit. You remember what happened there in, uh, in July in Branson? No, 17 people, I think, were, were killed in that. But what's interesting to me is that Josh Hawley, our attorney general, has filed a suit here. And uh, he, he is suing in this case. Other suits have already been filed by some of the relatives of the victims here. Do these two suits get in the way of each other, Rebecca, do you think? I don't think they necessarily get in the way of each other. Um, I will note that in the suit that Hawley brought, the defendants have responded uh, asking for dismissal based on the fact that uh, this is covered by federal law. Uh, the Coast Guard governs this, uh, and they suggest uh, that, that, that therefore he can't pursue this suit because this is completely governed uh, by Coast Guard regulations. Um, he's framed his suit as uh, under the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act, so I think it is an interesting question uh, whether he'll be able to get around that. In terms of whether it detracts from the tort suits, um, I, I don't think so. Is Hawley running for office? <laughs> Last time I checked, I think he was. Yes, very much so. I do believe, yeah. Okay, moving right along. There have been a couple of suits filed in connection with the uh, protests that followed the uh, acquittal of, of the police officer Stockley. The most recent one, just I think yesterday, was Alderman Megan Green has filed suit. Uh, basically, she was, um, she was interrupted on her way home from an event and was uh, tear gassed. But she is not filing for money. If she, if she gets any, she'll give it to charity. She's doing it to change policy. Is this the way to change policy, file suits like this? Well, I think these lawsuits may change some policy. I mean, the, as you say, there are a number of lawsuits. The, the one right before uh, Green's lawsuit was uh, Art City Defenders on behalf of 12 of the protesters there. A post-dispatch photographer has a lawsuit. Uh, there was an earlier ACLU suit, which is – in uh, which is being mediated right now to try to actually change uh, the policy. I mean, this was uh, the third night of protests. It was that whole kettling thing where they surrounded protesters, wouldn't let them out. Um, those protesters had not been connected with the window, uh, you know, the breakage of windows nearby. This, these were deplorable police tactics where they uh, basically and the, and closed these came, people in and put and used uh, uh, tear, tear gas, gas in their faces. When they were down, when they spraying were down. them, and and in that case that you're mentioning, Judge Perry issued the preliminary injunction to st- to stop these tactics, um, but. Yeah, I think it's it's a mixed bag on the history of the court in terms of being able to change police policies. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, a notorious area where it hasn't worked is in the case of chokeholds, which have been litigated mm-hmm. over and over and just that has not been able to change police policy. But but it, it could work and, it you know, there are situations in which it has. I think it's a, it's a multifaceted uh, approach that needs to happen. Right. A little over a minute left. Very, very quickly. Mark, very quickly, uh, Kim Gardner's exclusion list. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think my sense is they've had these in the past. There have been particular officers where they say we're not going to do that. But the fact that it's – nobody seems to know who's on it or why and that we've got retired officers, um, it just doesn't seem like it was handled well. Should the names of uh, Rebecca be publicized? I think that's a really tough question. Yeah. You know, I think there's so much uh, involved in that. I, I think the point of the rule, very similar to what we have in the criminal law, the exclusionary rule, it's uh, meant to uh, incentivize certain behavior and discourage others. Uh, whether you publicize the names of these particular officers, I think that's a very tough question, especially in this uh, current climate where we have a lot of outing uh, on the Internet and yeah. a lot of crowd action against individuals. I think it's very difficult. And this is being litigated, and it, it would probably be a, a 
an exception to the Sunshine Rule because it deals with, one would say, personnel issues. Yeah. And a number of cases, Bill, in 30 seconds have already been disrupted by this. They have, like uh, maybe, maybe a dozen. Yeah. I, think she, I think she mishandled it, and I think the name should be public. Everybody's talking about these things in Washington, and it's great to have the opportunity to do it with three attorneys. So I thank you all. Rebecca Hollander-Brumoff, thanks for being with us once again. Mark Smith, great to see thank you, you once again, as always. And Bill Farvel, the same to you. I'm Don Marsh. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.